This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm a mother, a friend, and a physician. I report on health and medicine for ABC News, but I'm here to talk about something very personal. My husband of 22 years and the father of our two teenage children died by suicide. I, like so many of you, have been on a journey that includes guilt, anger, and hopelessness. A journey to find courage, comfort, and community. This is for anyone suffering after unthinkable loss. This is life after suicide. My very special guest today is my 19-year-old daughter, Chloe. Chloe and my son, Alex, have given me purpose after the death of their father to suicide. I suddenly became a single, solo parent, and they were my motivation for finding grit and courage to go on. We'll talk about making sense of tragic loss and why my children encourage me to speak out so publicly about life after suicide. My daughter, Chloe Ashton, is here. Um, Chloe is a senior at the Lawrenceville School. She's always been a feisty, spirited, kind, savage beast of a human being. Um, she's an elite ice hockey player. She's going on to play a Division One college level ice hockey. So my idol on so many levels. She's an amazing younger sister to my son, Alex. And I got her a little bit of a day pass from classes today to come up to ABC and be on the podcast. Perks of having you as a mother, I guess. <laughs> I call it on-the-job learning kind of on-site life. On-site learning. On-site learning, life lessons. Um, Chloe and Alex, my children, are literally the reasons that I got the courage and bravery to write my book, Life After Suicide. And... Um, I think any parent who may be listening knows how much our children teach us. We like to think we're their teachers, but really I think it's the other way around um, and inspire us. And Chloe, you're, you and Alex, um, I remember the day very vividly when you said, Mom, you have to write this book. Um, and then I thought, oh boy, how am I going to do that? And it's really about bravery and courage. And you and Alex have shown that since the day dad died. Um, I want, I do want to go back, unfortunately, because it's, I know that it's hard for us to think back to that day, February 11th, but um, I will never forget, I think, the biggest mistake I made in my life that day, which was not pulling myself together enough to get in the car with Alex and my brother, your uncle, Evan, to go down to Lawrenceville to pick you up and tell you. Um, but when Alex and Evan walked in to get you at Lawrenceville, what do you remember about that? Well, it's actually interesting because when I think back to that whole part of my life, that 24-hour window, I actually start the night before 
um, which was Friday, February 10th. Um, and I was in my room at boarding school watching some show on the internet and I finished the show and I was sitting there. It was late at night. I was just about to go to bed. And I remember sitting there with this deep, almost sadness. And I was kind of like, what is going on? This is so weird. And I'd really never experienced anything like that before. And I remember thinking, okay, well, it's been a long week. I'm in the middle of hockey season. I'll just go to bed, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. And the next day on Saturday, I woke up and I still had this feeling. And I was kind of like, what could be going on? I, I literally had no clue because I had never even heard about anything like this before. But you know, I went through my class day um, and I was in my room because we have half days of school on Saturdays. I was in my room and I get a text from my hockey coach saying, hey, what are you doing? Come downstairs, hang out. And that in and of itself was not out of the ordinary. All of the girls on the team are incredibly co uh, close with our head coach, Nicole Lillias. Um, and I went down there, we were talking, and I was like, oh my God, I have all these papers to write. And then all of a sudden, my brother and my uncle walked in, and I was like, oh, cool. I'm, I guess they're coming to pick me up to go home. Literally, nothing even crossed my mind that there could be an issue. My brother's face, I couldn't literally, I think I'll be able to picture it for the rest of my life. It was, it was blank. It was literally emotionless. And that was kind of when I was like, what the heck? And so Uncle Evan sits down next to me on the couch, and my coach had left the room. And he says, all right, I have some really bad news for you. And the first thing that popped into my head was, oh, my God, Grandpa died, your dad. And I said, is it Grandpa? And he said, no, there was an accident, and they couldn't save your dad. And that was, I was just, the first, again, it's very funny how the mind works in these kind of fight or flight situations. The first place my mind went was, oh, my God, who is going to walk me down the aisle now? And that was right off the bat, not what am I doing tomorrow at my hockey game, not how am I going to get home from school from now on. It was who is going to walk me down the aisle now that dad's not here. And I looked at him and I looked at my brother and just obviously started bawling, crying. And I was like, what happened? What happened? And they wouldn't give me an answer. They said there was just an accident and we're going to get your stuff and we're going to take you home. And my uncle was like, we've got you. We're going to figure this out. We're all here. It's going to be OK. And he, so he said that. Yeah. That, he kept repeating that because I was obviously asking what happened, what happened. And I wasn't even like, where's mom? It was just what's happening right now and what happened to dad. And they wouldn't tell me anything. And I spent the whole hour and a half car ride home thinking to myself, oh my God, dad probably got a text when he was driving and looked down and was killed in a car accident. And that was the story that I constructed in my head. And the route that we take home from school to get from Lawrenceville um, to our old apartment overlapped with that which my dad would have taken to get to work. So literally in my head, I was thinking, what if we drive past the place where dad was killed in a car accident? And then when I got home, there were a bunch of people in the apartment and I, we went into my room and I was like, Mom, what happened? And all you responded to that was you said the bridge. And I was like, what? I don't even remember. Is that what I said? You said just the bridge. And then you gave me a hug and started crying. And you said, Dad jumped off the George Washington Bridge this morning. And that was I think that was the weirdest part for me, because obviously I had never 
even remotely picked up on the fact that dad had any sort of mental illness, but then thinking about the fact that our apartment literally overlooked the George Washington Bridge, and that was such an integral part of my childhood. That bridge was, we always went over that bridge as a family. We had gone on bike rides near there, and that was the place where my dad had ended his life, and now we had to look at it through the window. That was kind of when everything unraveled for me because it was almost easier to say, okay, it was an accident. This accident had happened. He hadn't had any control of it, over it. And we didn't know what uh, anything about suicide. We didn't. I had never even thought about it in that sense. And I was the first place my mind went was, why would he do this to me? It's a choice. And I think that a lot of people who go through this experience have that initial thought that this is a choice. This is something that he chose to do. And it really wasn't until the following day when we, the three of us, went to Sue. Um, where our therapist, and yeah, Sue Semmering, where she started explaining kind of even in the state that we were in, that this is not a choice. This is mental illness. There's it's a very complex issue. But it was really that moment when you said the bridge where I had the moment where I was almost like this can get worse. I just lost my dad. And now I have to grapple with the whole fact that it's suicide something that even I have to admit, my I thought of it as a choice, that it was this optional thing. And that was really when I realized that this was going to be way more complicated than I could have ever possibly imagined. Mm. Even though we were obviously all in shock and we were dealing with all these questions and, you know, Dad had just been at your hockey game on Wednesday. You and I had been texting with him the day before. Um, the, there were no signs. It was totally out of the blue. Um, and then the next thing that I really remember happening that day, and again, it just blows me away that you and Alex, I think you really held each other up that those first 24 hours, but you immediately went across the street because dad's apartment was right across the street because uh, two of our three dogs lived with dad. And explain, you know, what it was like when you found the three notes. Well, I actually didn't go. You're, it was Alex and Evan that went across the street. I didn't want to go because they said, we're going to go across the street to dad's apartment to check on the dogs. Would you like to come with us? And I said, absolutely not. I can't be in there. So it was my brother and my uncle that actually ended up going across the street. Um, and that was when they found um, three notes on the counter and I think like a self, his cell phone and keys. And he had left the door unlocked and we saw they had seen that the dogs had been fed. I think it made it harder that all of those details were accounted for um, for so, me. because So organized. So it was so organized that especially at that moment where I had found out three hours prior – I was like, oh, my God, this really was a choice. These things were obviously thought out. He had obviously considered these things. What is going on? And my brother just handed me the note, and he said, Dad left this, and he walked out of the room. So I was in the room by myself, and I really didn't know if I wanted to open it or I didn't know what would be in it um, or anything along that nature. And it, it was very interesting. At the end of the note, it was pretty short, but it said – skate hard, have fun, which was what he always said before hockey games. Um, which is like 13 years at this point of your, or more than 10 years of 
yeah, and then I was kind of standing there and I was, I was thinking to myself, all right, this is my life now. This is my how my relationship with dad ended. And that was what I was thinking to myself. Um, and right away, because I think we were all kind of disoriented and moving around the house and there were several people there. And I called my friend and I kind of heard people around and I said, I need you to go someplace private. And she instantly did. And I was I said, my dad just died. And she said, oh, my God, how? And I said, he jumped off the bridge outside of our apartment. And she said, obviously, how are you? Everything along those lines. And then she said, OK, I'll figure this out and hangs up the phone. And I, I was kind of like, OK, thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you for hanging up on me mm-hmm. right now. And literally within two hours of that call, they were at two and a half hours. They were at our apartment, my five best friends from my old school with food and all of those things and I was kind of just like wow I really didn't even have to ask these people and they knew that that would be what would help not texting me not calling me but just being there and that really ended up being the most important thing for me to get through that first night because we were just sitting in my room and obviously they were just laughing and kind of trying to be normal which they correctly anticipated that that would be what I would need and I remember sitting there being like, well, okay, I'm, I don't feel like I'm laughing genuinely, but I'm laughing. What is going on? And that was kind of always the question that I kept returning to. What is going on right now in that first 24 hours? Because obviously, thankfully, I hadn't dealt with death up until this point. I mean, we had family friends who had died, but both of my grandparents were still alive. We had pretty much gotten through the first 17 years of my life unscathed. And this was my first experience with that. And obviously, it was one of the worst ways in which I could have possibly been introduced uh, to such a reality of life. But I have to say that without my friends being there the first night, I really cannot possibly imagine how I would have just comfortably sat in my room and just spent right. spent time. They were so helpful. They were so amazing. I mean, even to this day, they've been incredible. Um, and one of them actually shows up like six or a dozen strawberry donuts. And I, I was standing there and I was like, Natalie, what are you doing? I, wh- why is that the first thing that popped into your head? And she goes, Chloe, I knew that these were your favorite. <laughs> but they weren't. Right? They literally, I don't think I've ever had a strawberry donut. Like, I don't even like donuts that much. And she was so confident that strawberry donuts were going to be the thing that would make me feel better. And I was like, well, I don't know what to do with a dozen of strawberry donuts now. Like there weren't even any other kinds. It was just a whole thing of strawberry donuts. And that kind of became the big joke. I was like, well, when tragedy strikes, I guess strawberry donuts are the go-to comfort food. Nothing says love and friendship like a strawberry donut. Exactly. Um, Those brief kind of comic moments that, first day and that first night, the one I remember um, that I know you do of you and me (laughs) was um, very soon after you got home. So maybe Mm -hmm. it was four in the afternoon. um, The detectives had come to the door at around 10 or 1030 in the morning. So not even six hours later. And we were it it wasn't such a big apartment. So you and I were standing kind of in the hallway. We were hugging each (laughs) other. Exactly what this is. And then Evan, my brother, 
comes up and we got into this group hug and the three of us were standing there just crying and hugging each other and holding each other. And then Evan kind of pulls his head back and goes, um, Jen, maybe a shower would be a good <laughs> idea. And I said, what, what do you mean? I mean, and she I, smelled horrible. I, okay. And I had showered <laughs> after going to like a spin class that morning. So I said to Evan, wait, what do you mean? I smell, <laughs> I showered at 10 in the morning. And he goes, always an option for a second shower. <laughs> and then you pulled your head back and you went, yeah, mom, I would, yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And so, you know, it was kind of the one kind of funny moment um, that the three of us shared <laughs> that in that horrible day. But um, I think the next thing that stands out to us, um, and by us, I mean really the three of us, you, me, and Alex, was when the story of dad's suicide was leaked to the press and we kind of were advised to, you know, put make an official statement on social media with the advice of ABC News and um, my publicist because it had been leaked and we didn't want incorrect information to be out there. And I think the, the next day was characterized by, you know, 90% of the online comments being, you know, supportive and loving and kind and compassionate but there were a lot of trolls who showed some incredibly ugly sides of humanity um, that you and Alex um, saw. How did you how did you deal with that? I mean, you guys felt, I think, maybe some obligation to protect me, but it was also an attack to me was attack to all of us. So what I found disappointing about the online comments is they were so they were really only looking at the surface level of things. And in some ways, I kind of do blame the people who wrote the headlines because obviously we've all looked at them and it was things always starting with TV personality, divorces, doctor, husband, and then suicide was the result, whatever way they were wording that. And I was like, okay, first of all, my mom's a person. She's not just a personality. She's a real person who has a life, who has a family. And second of all, it was actually not until the news outlet started reporting that that I even remembered that you guys had been divorced. I mean, just because we always kind of joked that it was the world's greatest divorce. And coming from my end of things, it really was because the only thing that was different was that dad had moved across the street. But in all other ways, we had dinner together. You guys, you never fought prior to the divorce and certainly not after. And he, you guys were still the same parents to us. So... That was kind of disappointing to me because I was almost like, oh, my God, of course, that's what they're going to pin this on. And as I started to learn more and more about the intricacies of suicide and what a large portion mental health kind of played into everything that had happened to dad and had happened to us, I was kind of like, really, you're going to blame my mom, who probably already feels as horrible as we do because we were all blaming ourselves, but you're really going to publicly pin this on my mom. And I was, I, I felt horrible. And because I knew that it wasn't true, 
And I was disappointed that that was the story that was out there, not that somebody had been struggling with mental health for a long time and they lost that battle. But let's blame the wife. Let's blame the divorce on it. And but when and, you say struggling for a long time, because we never saw dad struggle. Like, do you is that something you just assume that it had been, you well, know, I, that he hit it or because to all of us, we felt like it came out of the blue. Well, I think that as we've kind of learned about suicide and what things contribute to one's likelihood in um, dying by suicide, I think that we have learned that there can be certain triggers, but there are certain brain abnormalities. There are certain things that when you do look back afterwards, you can say, okay, that likely contributed to it. And just because we didn't see him struggling doesn't mean that he wasn't. And I think that many people do struggle internally. And just because we're not seeing the obvious, whether they're physical, whether they're in actions, just because we weren't seeing him struggle doesn't mean that he wasn't. And I think we can, it's obviously impossible to put a time frame on how long was dad suffering for? How long was he feeling depressed? But just admitting to the fact that for some amount of time he was. And I think that that's the most important part of things. And while you can't go back in time, I think it's made us more aware of how important it is to talk about these things. So I've kind of gotten into the habit of literally whenever I wake up feeling remotely weird in any way or if I just have a bad day, I make it a point to tell someone. Now, that doesn't always have to be you or it doesn't always have to be Alex. Sometimes I'll literally just say it to a random person in passing at school. But for me, it's been important to kind of remind myself, well, if I can acknowledge it to another person, I'm definitely acknowledging it for myself. And that's been sort of one of the habits that we've very consciously changed in our lives, in our day-to-day lives after the fact. And I think that that's incredibly important because life is so difficult and it's you cannot deny that there are going to be moments where you're struggling for long periods of time. But as we've learned, the more you can lean on your family members, your friends, whoever it is, the easier it is going to be to get through that. And you're kind of held accountable to get through that. We'll have more with my daughter, Chloe Ashton, in a minute. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. You mentioned school, and I was blown away by, you know, I didn't even realize the purpose of this at the time, but you and Alex basically went back to school seven or ten days um, after Dad's death. And I learned after the fact, or while maybe simultaneously um, from our therapist, that getting back to some routine, even when you feel like, how can I even put one foot in front of the other, is really important because it shows you that on some level, 
some part of your life is still the same as it was before this tragedy. Remind me what went well and what didn't go well. I remember your your first hockey game a week later, and I was thinking to myself, how in the world is she going to get through this? And you you didn't. Yeah, it I was didn't. it was so it was too much. So I want to hear your recollection of that. I was at the hockey game, and I remember skating around the ice on warm-ups saying, well, I'm never going to see Dad in the stands again. And I, just like you, I can always point out exactly where in the rink you'll be. It's very, it's a pattern. You always stand behind the boards. Don't Dad. embarrass me. Well, you kind of <laughs> embarrass know. yourself when you're <laughs> slamming on the boards behind the net. But And Dad would always be kind of above. And from the when I was playing hockey games at eight, that was just where you guys like to stand. Right. Um, and I think it's very revealing about your parenting <laughs> styles, but... I'll leave that to a later conversation. Um, and I think in the first period, I had gotten a penalty. And I know it always sounds like this, but it really wasn't my fault. Right. It was not my fault, right. but whatever. And I got the penalty and I was sitting there and I felt myself start to lose it. And then the period ended and I got off the ice and didn't go in the locker room. I went down like another hallway and you and Uncle Evan followed me and I lost it. And it, when I think back, when did you really lose it? This was the moment. This was the lowest part for me. Firstly, because I really hadn't lost control like this before. I think I'd been very composed and I had been in calm environments really up until this point, but I lost it. And then this poor referee happened oh, to be God. in the line of fire. And again, this is one of the moments that I really regret, but it's it's not funny, but it's kind of you remind yourself that you are human when you look back at these moments. I started screaming at him. I was like, you, you're so stupid. I didn't make that call. How could you do that? Really just going after the poor which, guy, which just almost like clear, most New York City sports fans right. in Boston. But <laughs> this was unfortunately outside of that. Right. And to to put that into descriptive terms for people who are not hockey parents, or, you know, or even youth sports parents. That just is never done. And not only is it never done, you have never done that. And it it's just speaks to, I mean, that man was like a saint. He just, he you know, he didn't flip out. He didn't even really respond. I think I might have explained. You went I, up to him afterwards. I went up to him and, and apologized and explained what had happened. But you're right. I agree with you. That was That was your rock bottom. But it's almost important, I think, for me to remember. I don't look back at that and say, I wish I'd never done that because I don't consider what the circumstances that I was under to be normal. Right. I don't consider that to be myself. I was just right. in a very different frame of mind. And in some ways, I've almost separated that person from myself just because I was kind of in survival mode. I was literally, I think that my emotions didn't have any other way of coming out. And as many people who have survived suicide loss or even just any type of trauma in general can probably uh, agree with, there is a lot of anger that is associated with those moments. And especially when it's loss, when it's loss of a parent, a lot of you is just very angry. And I think to this day, I definitely have to be aware that it is a lot easier to let that anger come out than to be calm. But what is going to serve me and the people around me better in the long term is going to be being calm is going to be talking about it but it's 
I had to recognize that my tendency was to get very mad, very explosive, very mean. And I think it was about a month after dad had died that I had the mental conversation with myself where I was thinking, what kind of person do I want to be after this? And you had kind of alluded to it, and Sue, our therapist, had kind of alluded to, there's really two ways to respond. You can respond to it well, and you can let it improve you as a person, or you can let it destroy you. And this was the moment a month later that I had the conversation, and I said, it didn't even seem like a choice to me. I said, I have to respond to this well, because... I'm not letting the work that has gone into hockey, that has gone into school, that has gone into becoming the person that I am, go to waste. If anything, I'm going to go into turbo drive because now I have a point to prove. And every situation that I walk in now, whether it's consciously or I kind of just do it by nature now, I walk in with a point to prove because I feel like I have a little bit I, I'm a leg down in some ways because I feel like I've gone through something horrible, but I don't let that make me angry at the people who haven't. I see it as this is going to make me better and I'm going to be better because dad isn't here to see it. So I need to be better. So that purpose in life, which I think that you always had, is, as you said, your purpose for living a life that makes you proud, honors dad's spirit and memory, is in turbocharge mode. And and I think part of it also you got from the support group at Lawrenceville called Friends Helping Friends. The day that dad died, I got a Facebook message and I opened it up and it was this kid who I had kind of known from around school. I think I had talked to him a couple times, but I, I really wouldn't have called him one of my friends. Had sent me this message and said, I'm so sorry for what you went through. There's this support group on campus if you need it called Friends Helping Friends, and we can have a meeting whenever you get back. And he kind of explained the premise of it, which I'll do in a little bit. But I was like, cool. Now I get to be part of the sad group on campus. Like, I was kind of like, really? Like, is my life going to be categorized by these sort of quote unquote depressing groups of people who have just gone through horrible things. I was kind of like, no way. I don't want to I don't want to deal with that. But I got back to school and I said, "You know what? I'll just give it a try." I really didn't even know who was in the group. And I went on that Thursday night that I got back to school and I was immediately bro- blown away because some of the people I recognized as kind of being the studs on campus. I mean, there was a varsity hockey player who was super popular and this other senior girl who was just very well known for being a genius. I mean, there were really impressive people. And for whatever reason in my mind, I had kind of separated the fact that these popular, well-accomplished people would be in this group. And we were sitting there and we were talking. And on that day, it was actually the two-year anniversary for one girl in the group of her father's um, death, to which he died from brain cancer. But they were kind of telling these stories. And I think... Anybody who's gone through trauma can relate to this. There are the things that are almost so sad or kind of so, oh, that they're funny. And they were telling these stories. And one of them I'll share that when this one of the girls in the group had gotten back to school after her dad had died, one kid said, oh, where have you been? Where have you been? And she was like, oh, I had family stuff. I was gone for a week. 
And she kind of said it that way, very sad and slow. He goes, oh, what, did someone die or something? And we were all like, ooh, <laughs> yep, that'll, yep, that'll do it. Actually, yes. And I think that it is important to acknowledge that there are going to be those moments where it's so un- ironic or unfortunate that you just kind of have to laugh. And I don't think that that's making light of the situation at all. I think it's just saying, how could this be so painfully ironic? Right. But that group has been so helpful. And one thing that I certainly never expected is now there's actually four out of the nine kids in the group lost a father to suicide. And I'm the president of this group with another girl at school. Um, And that just seems too crazy to me to be a coincidence. And I think that in some ways the universe brought us together and, and put us each in this situation for different reasons. But we're all there and we really understand what it's like to live every day with the stigma behind suicide because it certainly exists. I mean, there literally hasn't been that many days that I can think of where I haven't had some person inadvertently most of the time make a comment, well, oh, that makes me want to kill myself. And and that's just very much a part of the culture that we live in, that people make these comments not understanding the implications behind them. And actually recently one of my friends said, Chloe, can I ask you how you feel when people say things like that? That was the first time I'd ever been asked that. And I said, I almost feel ridiculous saying this, but I've kind of gotten numb to it. And I don't think that that should be the case at all. I don't think that we should have to get numb to these types of things. And a couple months ago, I was in class and there was a very similar situation that I went through where it was a class on civil liberties in the American Constitution. And we talked a lot about these philosophical discussions. The teacher brought up this the example of assisted suicide. The question was kind of phrased as, well, uh, okay, guys, is it okay for an 85-year-old to commit suicide versus an 18-year-old? And everyone was like, yeah, or some people were like, no. And they were like, what about the rich, smart, talented, athletic kid? That kid wouldn't want to commit suicide, right? And it was being framed in this way. And I was so shocked because two months prior, I had gone up at school meeting, which was our weekly assembly, with the girl who's my co-president who also lost her dad to suicide. And we talked about our experience briefly. And I said, these don't seem like the same intelligent, kind people who I thought I was surrounded with. And I went back to my room and just absolutely lost it. And I said... And and I remember that day when that happened. And I think it was really... It seemed like those examples that, that some of your classmates were given were like, if your life seems perfect on the surface, no one would ever choose to die by suicide. 100%. And I couldn't help but relating that to my life in some ways because I think I was very fortunate and I did have a great life and I think certainly my dad did and they were like almost it was almost like putting salt in the wound I was like really do you guys really think that this is all that it's about this is just wrong it's false and so you kind of have become this advocate for mental health and mental health awareness um, of which obviously suicide is a big part. And 
you've done that in a incredibly, I think, progressive but also safe environment academically and socially. Um, but you didn't have to do you didn't have to be as vocal as you chose to be, not just with this book and this podcast, but even in your school world. But that day, you were so upset by not just how it affected you personally, but as you say, what it meant for your peer group at school, that there were people who had these preconceived notions about what a typical suicide victim looks like or someone who dies by suicide looks like. And you really wanted to change that. So you wrote a Facebook post, which do you want to read it or do you want me? I, okay. I can read it. First of all, it's a page and a half. We're we're going to put the link up so people can read it uh, at their own time. But I want you to start reading at that sentence that starts, but then I realized, because I think that that's really where you, you really turn the corner. Okay. But then I realized the real issue at hand. This conversation reflects the societal lack of understanding about what suicide really is. Obviously, this is a broad topic, but the following statements have really helped me understand. One, depression is a disease, just like cancer. Suicide kills people with depression, just as cancer kills those with cancer. A person who dies from their battle with mental illness is not weaker than a person who loses their battle with cancer. Dying by suicide is no more selfish or stupid than a person who dies by cancer. Two, not everyone who commits suicide is depressed, just like not everyone who is depressed commits suicide. There are too many complex factors that contribute to this. Again, to make the parallel to cancer, not everyone who smokes gets lung cancer, just as not everyone with lung cancer smokes. Read your second to last um, paragraph. I see people posting about political issues in this country and attending marches and protests for and against certain issues. Do yourself a favor. Make mental health one of those issues. If not for yourself, for a friend, a parent, or a sibling. Let's not perpetuate this issue. And I said that because suicide has kind of just been brushed under the rug. And I think that this is one of the reasons that Alex and I encouraged you to write the book is because People need to know that it's not this taboo subject that we don't talk about that is someone's fault, that is someone that there's someone to blame for it. But it needs the same, if not more awareness than every other issue is getting in this country. It truly can happen to anybody. And if you have a brain and you have a mind and you have feelings, then you're affected by this. Obviously, you and I and Alex are still on this journey and there will be ups and downs and peaks and valleys and one step forward and two steps back. And I think we all intellectually know that. How how do you describe how you um, your healing process and the, you know, unfortunately, if you were in the situation today of comforting someone who lost a loved one to suicide, especially a parent to suicide, what would you tell them? What I think is important to realize in the death of a parent or really any tragedy in life is that it's going to, for lack of a better word, it's going to suck for a long time. And that's not because life has suddenly just become that way. It's just because, as Dr. Simmering always told us, you need to adjust to your new normal. And I think that the best way to go about that is just being aware. And I think what it comes down to is that mental choice and 
making that conscious decision that this is going to make me a better person. And I want to do that for dad. And I want to do that for all of the people who have died by suicide, because you have to honor their lives, that they weren't on this life without a purpose. And living in a way that honors them is exactly the way to kind of, in my opinion, rise above the tragedy aspect of it. My daughter Chloe and my son Alex haven't been the only people who helped me navigate our new after-suicide landscape. My children and I have had the help of that gifted therapist, Dr. Sue Simring, the one Chloe and I kept referring to. I decided to invite her onto this podcast as well. She earned her master's and doctorate of social work from Columbia University. She's taught at NYU and Columbia. And most importantly to my family, she has a private practice specializing in families and couples in New Jersey. I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Sue Simring. I realize every day, literally, how fortunate we are to have the resources to have a Dr. Sue Simring in our lives because so many people don't. But you have taught us so much and you have so much to teach on this issue. When you deal with people who are in the midst of this kind of acute shock as a mental health professional, what, what's your advice to them? The first thing, your whole uh, way of understanding life has disappeared. It's as if there's a, an earthquake and the ground has shifted from under you and you don't know where you are. So in the very beginning, there needs to be education that helps you understand what is happening so you're not so frightened. And so part of what I try to do is to begin the process of educating you about suicide, about grief. Grief, however, by the way, is a form of love. I mean, grief is love. You're not grieving if you didn't love someone or the person that you lost. So the very beginning has to include education that what you're going through is normal, helping you begin to make meaning out of what happened, um, giving you permission to take a break because you cannot power through in your usual way. And for any high-achieving person, they're going to think, okay, I'll take one, two, three, four weeks off for this, and then I'll get back to life as usual. Well, is there a timeline? The length of time it takes for grieving is different for everyone. Everyone's path that way is different. However, at some point, maybe a year two years, if there's still an obsession with the why and an inability to re-engage in life, then we call that complicated grief. And so then there are special therapeutic approaches that are needed to deal with someone who gets stuck in the grieving process. Let's talk about self-doubt because that um, is my forte. <laughs> um, self-doubt in the setting of... Um, life after suicide, for me, kind of took the form of there are times I feel like the strongest person now, and there are times I feel like the weakest person. And that's one way I think that I um, engage in self-doubt. And I remember a, one of many times where I was doing a session with you, and I said, I feel like I have a short fuse now. Do you think that I do? And is this a consequence of what I went through with the trauma of Rob's suicide. And I remember giving you an example one time and you said, no, nah, I don't really think that qualifies as a short fuse. I think that was appropriate. And then there were times that I gave you an example and you go, 
Yeah, that was a that was a pretty micro micro fuse. Very short, very 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 short. And so my self doubt, Sue, is that I think to myself, "Am I, is this always going to be priming the pump for me in terms of my behavior and reaction to things?" And that's scary to think like I, I'm a different person now. Absolutely, um, you have been through something that has transformed you. And that's the reality. And so part of what we look for, or what I look for in healthy grieving, is being able to accept this reality for what it is. Not to be fighting it, not to be angry about it, um, but to be able to accept it and in all of the good and the pain that has come with what has happened. I want to say something about depression and mental illness and suicide. If we define mental illness as a severe distortion of reality, in other words, that's how we're going to define it, that your sense of reality is so distorted that you're incapable of making judgments, then people that commit suicide are mentally ill. Uh, I mean, because at that time, Dealing with the pain of his or her life, dealing with the sense of hopelessness, um, feels like it's never-ending, and the only way out is to kill myself. So that is a distortion of reality because much mental illness and much depression is episodic, and it comes and goes. And so people that have tried to commit suicide and then failed— um, often feel that they're glad they didn't succeed because they went on to lead productive lives. So it's very important to know that you'll never be able to answer that why question because it has to do with the mental illness at the time of the person who commits suicide. Their sense of reality is distorted. And at that time, he or she feels this is the only way out. And so it's a very, very... Um, important information um, as part of destigmatizing suicide. You also taught us, Sue, a term multiple truths. Multiple truths is how can I be strong and weak? How can I be happy and sad? And people make the mistake of thinking it's either or, you know, that either I'm uh, strong or I'm weak. I'm really in shock uh, or... I'm having a good time. And once you embrace multiple truths, that it's and, 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 and suicide is complicated, and we can look at contributing factors, and I'm having a hard time, and I had a great time having dinner with my friend the other night, so that uh, there's not the self-doubt and the self-blaming and the self-judgment. What would you say to someone listening who has lost someone to suicide and they are trying to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Faith that you have the ability to get there. A feeling is not a fact. Just because you feel hopeless doesn't mean that it is hopeless. It's been a pleasure to introduce you to my daughter, Chloe, and to our family therapist, Dr. Simring. Two very special people in my journey towards courage, comfort, and community, and to get back to happiness in my life. 
I'm interested in what you thought of what they said, so please send me your feedback. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at DRJ Ashton. The feedback on this podcast and on my new book, Life After Suicide, has been amazing. Thank you for all the support. I'm really glad we're on this journey together. My guest next week is Talinda Bennington. Her husband, Chester, was the lead singer of Linkin Park until he died by suicide. To be honest, I can't listen to I can't listen mm-hmm. to his voice. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to listen to his song. I've walked out of restaurants when I just hear the first like note. The ripple of sudden loss is real, and our goal is to be a resource and inspiration for as many people as possible. So please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and give us a review and a rating. I want to thank the team that produces this podcast. Eric Strauss is the managing editor of the ABC News Medical Unit. Ann Reynolds is our senior producer. My friends at ABC Radio have worked so hard to bring you this podcast, including Tara Gimble, the manager of programming, producer Trevor Hastings, manager of digital audio Josh Cohan, and executive producer Andrew Kalb. Thank you for taking this journey with us. We'll see you back here next week on Life After Suicide. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide or worried about a friend or loved one, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to 741-741 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for free, confidential, emotional support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.